1: Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy.
0: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to beherenownetwork.com slash Dale, to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Ramdave Dale Borglum, of the Healing at the Edge podcast channel on the Be Here Now Network. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that this network is supported by donations from people like you, so at the homepage, there's a place to donate. We'd appreciate it if you could do that. Today, I'm so happy to have my dear friend, Sandra Fish, with us. She is a writer, an actress, and a prison activist who has been working for years to get a prison hospice at San Quentin Quentin Penitentiary here, started in Marin, which hasn't quite happened yet. Welcome, Sandra.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about your efforts and why it is that you want to start a hospice here in San Quentin when there are other prison hospices around the state of California?
2: Okay. Without going back into the history, I guess. Um, Well, because there needs to be a, a hospice in every prison, because it's not really hospice if you are transferring. Inmates from San Quentin who've lived there for decades. This is their family. This is their home. It's even it, with the inmate situation. It's tighter than familial bonds. It's it's so hard to explain how, how just how important it is for them to be near those people. And so, if you move them up to Vacaville to that hospice, it's 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 damaging, um, it's scary. So yeah, there needs to be hospice in place in the prisons. Yeah.
0: So that Important. you you are going in there with other people training inmates to be hospice volunteers to guide other inmates as they're approaching death. Is that correct?
2: Yes, to comfort them, to guide them, to to yeah. Could yeah.
0: you could you say a little bit more about that? <laughs>
2: I will say more about that. Great. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. I, I, I've been do, I've been working on this for ten years or over ten years. Um, it's it's important for our community as well. It, it's um, dying. They're dying badly. First of all, in in prison, and then if they're dying alone. Uh, this affects their families on the outside, um, and that means their neighborhoods, our neighborhoods. Uh, it, it's it's inhumane. Uh, the men, when they're trained to be volunteers, to care for each other, it's extraordinarily redemptive and uh, transformative for them. And we've heard that over and over again. Uh, so I... It, I can't let it go and people think I've been tenacious, but it's something that actually doesn't allow me to, well, now I can sleep, but it it would bother me a lot at night before I go to sleep because I, you know, I, I mean, making phone calls to San Quentin, I mean, when I first started and tried to get this going and I actually finally did get through, had a big hospice organization. I made a meeting inside, bad fit. Everyone acted like they were on board, everyone dropped it. Wardens change, head of healths change. Um, but you just keep, you know, I, I have a lot of connections around it now. And when the timing was right, suddenly I have the best people involved. Um, we've gotten our brown cards, our beige cards to go in, which is huge. And uh, we're working with this group of men called Brothers Keepers, and they have wanted hospice and and training in hospice for a long, long time. And I was going in over this decade, meeting with them, talking about it, thinking we were going to get it moving, and then something would happen. Now it's really, there's so many people more on board, um, so I I feel, you know, it's never going to stop trying but it feels very hopeful now and at least we're in to to support them and help them train them because guys die guys die in their cells they die um, they're growing older there now they're not the guys that they're not letting out no one wants to go to the medical building because if you go to medical building you're you don't ever see your friends you're you're pulled away you're alone and they feel strongly that when they're with their friends, they heal better, and they they feel much better. And guys that go in the medical, they get especially if they're dying, they will be locked in a in the fourth floor, and they will die, badly.
0: So now, when you when you say badly, what do you really mean by that?
2: A couple things. What um, would a
0: what would a good death be?
2: I think a good death would be um, not that fearful loneliness that they these the the all the men I've spoken to they want the their their these people who become their brothers and family around. So that would that would be more comforting and the process would be more comforting. When they're alone and these walls are bare and there's no windows and they're locked in and they have a nurse or doctor poking their you know nose in Barely. Um, I'm not sure how much palliative care they receive, um, but a lot of the men are willing to be in more pain physically and stay away from the medical building, if in order to be with their comforted by their friends and sallies and around people they know.
0: So, how, how much are you bringing in the spiritual dimension in training hospice workers? I, because I know, for instance, that. Uh, Brothers Keepers are uh, is a Christian based organization. No, it's this not. Isn't
2: th- no, no, that's not. That's someone else's. This is co- okay. I, l- l- let me tell you how Brothers Keepers started because it's kind of extraordinary um, because of the man who started it inside Marvin Much, who he was released um, a little over a year ago after being in prison for 41 years. uh, And he didn't commit the crime. So he was innocent, and he was in prison for 41 years. Anyway, long story, I got connected to him on the outside, while I was looking for people to do this. Marvin started Brothers Keepers, and I had been already going in and meeting with Brothers Keepers. So what happened one morning is Marvin was having breakfast with his best friend in prison as um, they part ways, and his friend goes up and kills himself. Marvin couldn't believe it; he was so upset he 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 was he couldn't understand how he could have breakfast with someone, and then they killed them and while they were planning on killing themselves, and he just was at a loss, so he you know, went to the people that were having other groups. There's these women that were coming in from Bay War, Bay Area Women Against Rape, who were doing something with Jacques Vardoun, who was um, with Insight Prison Project at the time. And he said, can you help us form a group of men who would be able to get this signal? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's just so disturbing. So they get this group of men they call them brothers keepers. These women came in. They're just retiring now. We're, we're coming in. Um, they trained them for like 18 months to be crisis counselors so that they could see things about people that, hey, he looks a little depressed, blah, blah, blah. And they wear starfish pins um, so that the other inmates will know that it's confidential. They will not take because the inmates don't like to go to shrinks because then it will be on their record. Right. So they can come to the brother's keepers and feel safe and trust them. And do you know the starfish story? You probably do, but maybe I should tell it.
0: I don't think I I do know know it anyway. I'd love to hear it. All
2: right. Okay. So, uh, the starfish story is about, um, the guy on the beach, the beach is covered with starfish and they're dying. So he would pick one up and throw it back in the sea. And someone came along and said, are you kidding me? You're never gonna save all all these starfish. It doesn't matter. You're wasting your time. And then he threw another one in and said, mattered to that one. So that's the concept. Um, And the suicide rate has gone way down. I think it was it none for some years. So that was started about, I don't know, twelve years ago or so. Okay. So, so the spiritual aspect to them, um, there's a lot of Christianity in prison. Um, people with that kind of faith, uh, there's everything. In our group, we and they've been through so many programs. I mean, San Quentin is the mecca of programs. So, a lot of them meditate. Um, there's some Buddhists there's Jewish religions, there's um, no religion, there's, a, there's an Amer- a Native American. Um, so there's a real variety. And, and that freedom to, and we, we stress that, Ladybird definitely stresses that. This is, this, is, this is not about, this isn't a spiritual quest. This is, this is a practical, and you use whatever you want, you get from it what you want, but that we're not training them to be spiritual guides for the men dying it, unless you know it depends on who's dying what they want and and these guys are very very and i should say and a woman we have one transgender in our group and very accepting of each other you know there's a you know a couple gay men transgender it's a it's a it's a really remarkable group of people so It's it's my it's my peaceful time of the week when I go in there.
0: Are you bringing in any meditative concepts to the program?
2: Um, Not really, because they've had that. They've taken those courses, but we will do some of that. We will once we get in like we do grounding exercises, even in the beginning of the crises uh, group. Um, and when we start into more in the hospice, there will be a, a, a spiritual aspect and there will be grounding and maybe meditations of their choice. We want it very, you know, so, yeah, meditation is always good. So um, did we go into my meditation history or not? I don't know. I, I, I'm a firm believer in it myself. I'd, I'd be quite mad if I didn't meditate. Um <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hate to think about it.
2: Oh, everyone like does.
0: <laughs> so I was involved in helping train the volunteers at Vacaville Hospice many That's years right, ago. Right, right, And one of the big problems they had there was that often when men are dying, they need opiate medications for pain relief. Mm-hmm. And the California Department of Corrections is not that fond of having prison inmate hospice volunteers around opioids and they really had a kind of a hard time in the beginning of figuring out how to let the the hospice volunteers be around the the dying patients who uh, when there was morphine and other other drugs floating around but I think they finally figured that out but I, I I did really have the sense that these men who were volunteering to be hospice volunteers were quite beautiful souls. I mean, some of them had incredibly violent pasts. One guy in particular, I was remembering, his His name was Sloppy, and he was a Mexican mafia hitman who had killed, he said, they only got me for killing 23 people. That's just the ones they caught me for. And uh, he was a very he had a very aggressive personality, shall we say. The first time I met him, we were in a group uh, outside the Catholic chapel uh, about to begin a training session. And he had been sort of the, the the strong male of the group, the the alpha male, because the people that were running the group were quite elderly and frail. And I came in as a one or two time uh temporary teacher if you will so sloppy got up and he stood behind me as i was talking to the group and he started growling <laughs> and he growled louder and louder to see if he could scare me or bother me and i said come on sloppy quit that and just come on up here you know and we became fast friends but you know i would guess that there are some people out there who even feel a, a very different way than you do Sandra that because because Sloppy killed at least 23 people, maybe he doesn't deserve a humane death. You know, that there are people who feel these guys deserve to be there and they don't deserve to have it be humane or good. They deserve to suffer. What would you say to them?
2: Well, I certainly understand, you know, if my daughter were killed by someone or I would want to kill them. But um to me it's very simple that um especially because i'm around these men the the crimes these men did they they they, i don't know any of them don't have aggressive the ones that we're training don't have aggressive personalities any longer but um they did things when they were very young and they have gone through so much they are so So far and above most people I run into on the streets uh, because they own what they've done completely. It's very difficult. And I think that's true. It's harder to own. It's harder to be someone who has harmed someone than to be the victim. I think personally, if you have harmed someone and you have to really own that. Now, as far as the people who are dying, who haven't decided to own what they've done who've done horrible things and people think they should have a horrible death it just i just i i don't see how that's helpful i feel like it says more about us than it does about them by helping them i feel like the the care the brothers keepers give it changes them and helps them and there's a human moment and it's it's I, I think my own feeling about death is it's it's incredibly important. That moment when we die is incredibly important. I don't think we even understand how important it is. It's the most important moment. So to, to think that by letting someone who was a bad person die badly, which there are very few of those people, by the way, in prison, very few of that type, um, it doesn't make sense to me i don't see the value in it i understand the emotional feelings that people would get but the value of helping someone through that very important time helps us too i mean it just seems like a, an obvious cause and effect to me i i don't so i understand but if maybe if they were came into the prison or met some of these people they would change their minds do
0: you have uh, one or two stories about these, these uh, potential hospice volunteers showing their humanity?
2: Sure. Um, I was thinking of some stories with Marvin um, and the guys inside. Well, they show their humanity every time we go in. I, I, again, I'm going to just weep. They maybe, are the most,
0: maybe you could talk yeah. about Marvin a little bit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Marvin, all right, so Marvin, oh, and Marvin worked in the Vacaville Hospice in the end. That was where he ended up getting out of after, you know, he spent most of his time. He was known as the mayor of San Quentin. Uh, uh, he changed a lot of laws there. He did over a thousand writs. He's a white Jewish guy, which to me is shocking. I had, In fact, I asked him we, when we had our first lunch, I said, so how are you in prison? You're a white Jewish guy um he was brought up in the foster care system which was brutal um his mother had been a holocaust victim uh she was unstable so he ends up in the foster care here's a here's and marvin who he is um his nature he's a he's a justice person justice justice it's all about justice so in this There was a skinhead who threw him off the third tier at San Quentin. So that's how he ended up in Vacaville in medical. And then he started doing the hospice work there. But Marvin, when he was seven, I have to tell this story because it's such a good story. And it's who Marvin is. He was only seven. He was in a foster family. They had a foster girl who was like five and then two biological girls. And it was near Christmas. The foster girl wanted a chatty Cathy. I had a chatty Cathy. Only you people from the 50s will know about chatty Cathy. You pull the string, this doll talks. So she wanted a chatty Kathy, She wanted a chatty Cathy. Christmas comes, uh, the two biological girls get chatty Kathy's. The foster girl gets a doll that's just arms and legs and doesn't talk. Cry, 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 sobbing, heartbroken. Mark says no, it's okay, your doll is better, your doll is better. And she's like, no, it's not, it doesn't talk. And he said, but she listened. So from then on, this little girl, he said she talked to that, brought that doll wherever she went and blah, 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 blah told her everything. So that's Marvin's heart and soul is about helping people. And when you go in with these, and he, he was the brother's keepers who started it. And when you go in with these other guys who who were convicted because they actually did their crimes, um, they have come to a place where it is so important for them. And they will say this over and over to serve each other, to help, to make up. They say, I'll never make up for what I did, but it's so important to me. I've That's who they've become. So they've become these people where that's who they are. They, they serve each other. They help each other. They want to. Learn more. They wanna. They're so articulate when they t- and and respectful when they talk to each other. And so um, let me think of some other stories. God, there's so many. And most of them were um, sexually abused as children. And I can say most. Um, that's a real problem. Uh, yesterday I was in San Quentin and we saw a film on sexual abuse of children. It, 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 as adults, they, it was called breaking the silence. And I mean, that room is so quiet, um, so quiet. I mean, they've been. There was one who spoke about um, being raped by her father and the motorcycle gang, and the. I mean, I mean, I, I'm try, There's some confidentiality I have to keep here, so I have just made a mistake because uh, it would you'd know who it was just by the way I said that. So. Um, A lot of tough, a lot of tough, tough childhoods. Um, Most of these guys did something when they were 18 or 19. Right. Um, A lot of our brother's keepers get paroled out, though. We hate to lose them. We're really happy they get out. Um,
0: When I facilitated a group at San Quentin for men with AIDS, I one day I did a poll, there were like 19 guys in the room. I said, how many of you were abused as children? And 18 of them raised their hands, 18 out of 19. And the only guy who hadn't been abused was this white guy who was in for repeated DUI. And yeah. everybody else was in for some kind of violent crime.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, see, that's common. And And it's just too bad. I mean, that they didn't get the support they needed as children. Um, It's too bad for all of us, you know, in the end. So, so why did I get involved in prison activism? (laughs) Do you want to know? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not like, you know, yeah, I, I actually did a play 30 years ago called Getting Out. And it was a play, I played a person who was thrown in prison as a young, as a 18 year old girl. And it was so well done. Marcia Norman wrote it and and we had a great director and we did amazing research and my eyes just opened up where I could never shut them again. I mean, we went into women's prisons, we did research, it was sold out. Uh, it was really, really good. So it was over 30 years of sl- it was so slow, but so organic that whenever I had an opportunity, I went a little a, a little deeper in it. Um, I was in New York in 2001 and was teaching ex-inmates how to get a job in Midtown Manhattan when the towers came down and. Um, they were frightened. They were newly released. Uh, and I and we had to evacuate our building. And I said, but you still have to get a job on Monday. Call me. So they, they, I just, you know, and I fell into that by, I was doing refugee work across the hall. And, you know, it just was always, so then I, you know, and I went into Sing Sing and I taught in Rikers. Um, and then I was working with end of life work. Um, when a friend died a friend died in 97 I held her hand when she took her last breath and I got very interested in end of life and then about 10 years ago I was working part-time in a friend's law office and I asked him he's a very he's a very good defense attorney I said so how are the guys dying because I'd been involved in all this end-of-life work Um, badly he said badly I thought, oh, gosh, I want to go sit with them. So I called, made some calls, made some emails to uh, prison volunteer people. Can I go in and sit with inmates who are dying? No, you can't just go in and sit. You should get some training, even though you've done the work. And that's what started. And I went to a hospice and trained and volunteered for a couple of years and then just kept Pounding the doors. (laughs) It's hard to get into prison if you're white and didn't kill anybody. So, Uh, yeah.
0: Do you have some website where people can go and hear about, read about what you do?
2: Yes, we do have a website. I'm glad you asked uh, because we did form a nonprofit, a, a close friend that's works in San Quentin sometimes said, you've got to have a website or they're not going to, I mean, you've got to have an organization or they won't listen to you. So it's, it's a long one. It's humane prison hospice project.org. Okay. So we, you know, it's humane, humane prison hospice org. So that, that is our website. You'll get some information. Uh, you'll see who's involved, which I think is a stellar group. Um, And we will be posting things and you can check it out.
0: Okay. So before you said you're going to have a couple of stories about inmates and then you kind of took a little detour there.
2: Yeah, I took a little detour. Um, I'm trying to think of them um, because when we're working with the group, we're... Not really. We're not the group. There are groups that focus completely on their crime, but these guys have already done that. So uh, when I was in at Peace Day, I had some longer conversations, of, personal conversations about people and their crimes. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, there's a mafia guy, and 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 it's also behind them. It's like a, it's like it's like those were other people. Almost so but the,
0: but Sandra, the stories don't have to have to be have, oh, the,
2: have to be about their crime I no, guess.
0: no the the story is about who they are now i mean how, how it okay. is how it is they touch oh. your hearts, not oh. what they did uh, to get them in the joint in the first gotcha. place
2: Gotcha. Um, wow, they're so appreciative, all of them um. They're so kind to each other that, you know, we sit in a circle or, or right now we're meeting in a chapel. But when we were sitting in the circle, they were we went through interviews. Everyone's highly vetted to get into this group. So you have to interview. and A lot of questions are asked. Um, what are your feelings about homosexuality? And these are guys, you know, who in their old lives were just homophobes and they're just so open and understanding and listen so well to each other. Um, and and they say things like, well, we do need a you know we do need a transgender and we we should have a Muslim you know someone from the Muslim re- religion and I mean I do I walk away going why can't our government be more like these people I have to come into San Quentin to find civ- civilization and sanity and peace and they're they're very uh, compassionate with it, with some If someone didn't get paroled, if uh, someone's mother has died, someone's died on the outside, it's not, oh, sorry for your loss. I mean, it's, sorry about that. Um, It's more, um, it's so heartfelt. It's like they really do feel what each other is feeling. And so when there's some, I'm going to weep again, when there's something going on in the room, uh, someone might bring up a personal story that's, Hard to hear. Uh-huh. It gets so quiet in there. It's so. Everyone in that room is is going through it and supporting them. And yeah, I don't. I really don't cry when I'm in there. But when I get away from there, I weep because when I'm in there, it's you know falling on the floor and weeping is not going to be very helpful and. Like you're so they're so present and so uh, sincere. Um, you just rarely get to see that level. So that that's that's and you get it right away. When we walk in, there's Big John coming out in the yard to you know make sure we're okay and um, so grateful that we're there. Uh, you don't get a better audience. Talk about a captive audience. So <laughs> they are, and they were just in lockdown for three weeks. So we were asking, how was that? Are you guys okay? Should we do a debriefing? Should we do some counseling and not not jump into this <laughs> child abuse uh, today? And there, they were. Some of them were. Well, it was good to have some downtime. They're very busy, these guys, with programs, and they have jobs, and they're, they're very busy. Um, the uh, one guy was not so happy, and some of them weren't so happy. I mean, those cells are, I believe, illegal to keep a dog in that size of a of a space, and you have two men in those spaces, so to be locked in there, you know, one guy was telling me he was playing chess with, you know, they I played chess from, we played chess from three to nine one day, you know, and um, yeah, they, they're extraordinary people because not everyone obviously in the prison is like that. So these are human beings who, first of all, came from wretched childhoods, then did something horrendous, which no one really wants to do, gets locked up in a cell and has now elevated themselves with the help of the community and they took advantage of it and they've become, I mean, you just can see what the human being can, what really can happen. It, it's its stunning. I mean, it really is.
0: So you, you uh, what you said there gave me a brilliant idea. Maybe we could put the, head of the heads of the government and the cabinet and the heads of Congress in prison for a while. <laughs> what do you think of that as the they way know. of... <laughs> kind of kidding there, but not quite.
2: <laughs> I know, but not quite. But maybe we could elevate even them. I, it would be interesting, yeah.
0: So, I mean, it's, can- it's interesting to think what could change the heart, what could open the heart, what could break open the heart of people at the top levels of government. Oh. I always had this feeling that uh, yeah. if somebody uh, – I'm talking now back when George – Bush was president, and that that if I could have been put in a room with him, I could talk to him for two days, and it really wouldn't change anything. But if one of his daughters was diagnosed with breast cancer, or if his wife had died, or if he knew somebody really close to him who had committed suicide, then possibly that conversation could really create some change in him. And uh, again and again, people who really don't seem to be awash in compassion when they're confronted with the end of life something begins to crack open them and crack open in them in in buddhism and tibetan buddhism before one begins to practice one contemplates the fact that i'm going to die but i don't know when so we're assuming that you and i are going to get to the end of this podcast we're still going to be alive and i'm going to push the button
2: we'll we assume that but yeah. but
0: but do we really know that how how would we relate to each other any differently if this was our last time ever to look into each other's virtual eyeballs through our computers here
2: i'd or- grab a beer <laughs> in a refrigerator or something but but i but i won't do that now or i might but go ahead i'm sorry
0: no but so the same thing people who are uh, hearing the podcast now, I mean, if we really knew we were going to die uh you don 't have to be in San Quentin you don 't have to be in the government to be transformed by that, and yet somebody once said the most amazing thing in the world is that everyone 's going to die and yet everyone acts as if they weren't as if they you were they act as if they were immortal,
2: true, but you know you don't right i mean you're very aware i'm i'm constantly aware of my own death and still misbehave with my impatience with things. But it is it is. I mean, I told my daughter when she was in high school, you've got to get your head around death. You've got to make some sort of philosophy or something, but you've got to face it. We're going to die. And you just be just know that, you know, and my favorite Zen saying is. And Jack Cornfield said that I've only been to Spirit Rock, I think twice, and I got two huge things both times. He said that when he was studying to be a monk and was worrying about this and worrying about that, and the Zen monk that I guess that was teaching him just looked at him and said, don't worry, soon dead. <laughs> this is how I live. So
0: That I explains am- a lot.
2: <laughs> when I make my decisions, I make them based on my deathbed. When I have a decision, I'm wrestling with. I make them based on my deathbed. I really, really do. And I could be really regret it at some point in the next forty years or so. But um, I'm experimenting with life, so I just kind of do what my gut's telling me.
0: When my son was starting in kindergarten, uh, we had a parent teacher meeting, and the teacher said, "We're." Uh, a little bit worried about your son, he keeps talking about death and he's scaring all the other children. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, that's okay. It's the family business. <laughs>
2: <laughs> scaring all the other children. And my daughter had one of those. incidents. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No, we, I would, I, yeah, I like talking about death. I could talk about death all day, really. I mean, it's such a mystery. And yet we're going to do it.
0: Well, and I find that it's such a blessing to be with people who are approaching death. And one of my lines that is true, and I think is really kind of shocking, is that the most beautiful Americans I've ever met, almost without exception, are people who are almost dead, <laughs> <laughs> because they're willing to be themselves beyond man, oh, yeah, woman, please. rich, poor. Yeah, let's do yeah. Uh, incarcerated outside the walls, you know. I mean, it's like when you're dying; all of that stuff fades into the far and that's distance. That's
2: what we wish for. I always wish that for everyone. I just want everyone to be themselves, and I want them to love themselves. I don't understand that.
0: <laughs> don't oh, I'll bet it. you do. I'll bet you understand it.
2: Um, not really. Not loving yourself. I guess I understand it. I but when I love someone and they tell me they don't love themselves and that most people say they don't love themselves. So that's that's actually a hard one for me to get around. I I get mad at myself. It's not like I don't get annoyed at myself.
0: When the, when the Dalai Lama came to his third visit to America, he said, now I'm beginning to understand and it makes me very sad. You Americans don't like yourselves. Mm. And this whole Project of spiritual transformation could be thought of as changing your identification with our separate personality structure to uh, our wholeness, to that which does not change, to that which does not die. And if we be, yet, all these Eastern practices that are so popular were developed by and for people who were walking around barefoot, grounded and centered, and loved themselves. And yet, there's <laughs> such entrenched neurotic structures individually and collectively here in the West, that there's this tension going on between who we really are and what the ego structure is saying, no, no, no. And uh, so my feeling is that a lot of people get into meditation, kind of bump into a wall because they, uh, they don't like themselves and they're trying to let go of a structure that they haven't made Friends with yet that you really have to do some psychological loving yourself, uh, surrendering, accepting, getting embodied, grounded, and centered, creating a foundation for then this dissolving, flying into the heart, letting go, and all all of those more intermediate kinds of practices. And so these so these 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 guys in prison, there they are uh, looking at themselves and their cellmate and. Uh, it's either love yourself or uh, it's kind of almost unbearable, I would guess. And so my friend Bo Lozov started this thing called the Prison Ashram Project. And what he says to people in prison is what I, I say to people who are dying, is that you don't want to be in this body that's in prison. You don't want to be in this body that's dying, but you are. And it's a lot like being in an ashram right now. I mean, you, you don't have to do a lot of things. You can focus on awakening so that can you use your time in prison? Can you use your time of approaching death as a time of awakening, not just pushing away something that you didn't choose to have happening?
2: Yeah. I And you hear a lot of guys in prison uh, talk about, you can't lock me up. I'm free.
0: Right. You know
2: who have gone through all of that. And there is also a lot of talk. I'm not my crime. You know, that's not who I am. Um, and then you hear even guys who've done hospice work in Vacaville say it was so good for them because they found out I I actually can care for someone. I don't really know. I'm not that bad person. Right. I can, you know, that, that really helps them that, that cracks their hearts open quite often. That. Uh,
0: well, I think that's a great place to bring this to a close. Okay. I thank you for, uh, very much. Maybe you could mention the name of your website again.
2: I will. It's Humane humaneprisonhospiceproject.org.
0: And our website here is livingdying.org. In fact, we just created a whole new web design. You might want to go and take a look at that. Thank you, Sandra. Oh
2: wait i want to say one more thing
0: okay uh
2: the website um the people who created the website when i first was creating our or trying to find someone to do our logo my brother's a major logo designer and he did something and people were going eh, yeah but it's got white it's it you know, looked too white or something so often it hit me we use i said well we've got to use inmates to create it so there's a and, and you can see it at the bottom of our website and you can check them out the last mile the last mile was created by beverly and chris redlitz the are silicon valley people and they go in and they they have a, a program um to teach men who are getting out very select men how to code and so they learn how to code and then I mean, it's and there's no Internet in prison. So they created some simulation to uh, to Internet, but it's not the Internet. And they learn how to code and they learn how to design. And they and so they are. So we hired them to do our logo and our design. And it's it's pretty nice. So, yeah, do look at it just for that. Obama's administration had sent someone to look at the last mile program and wanted it in all the prisons. But um, we'll see how that goes. I think it was mentioned to get rid of it in this administration. <laughs> but let's not end on that note. Let's end on the note that this really does crack open the heart, the the work the, the men are doing and the
0: women in prison. Thank you so very much. Thank you.